They fell through the sky, holding hands, smiling and laughing. They let go of each other, preparing to open their parachutes. The fleeting feeling of happy exhilaration was followed by fear and dread, as Else Van Dorn discovered that hers wouldn't open properly. From the sky, her teammates watched as she plunged to the ground, screaming. As this episode unravels, much like the strings of her parachute, it was discovered that the cords had been cut. She had been murdered. Hello, and welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Let's fly to the province of Limburg, Belgium, where the beer is tasty, the cheese is stinky but delicious, and the population is very dense, which might be why some people take to the skies, including Els. Els Van Dorn was born in June of 1968 in the heart of Antwerp. As an adult, she led a life that seemed pretty ordinary. A married woman and mother of two, she, along with her husband Jan, managed a quaint family-run jewelry store in the peaceful town of Ranst. But beneath this veneer of suburban tranquility, Elle's typical life took a turn in 1994 when she discovered a passion for skydiving. Her husband Jan was her initial partner in the skies, but over time his enthusiasm for the sport waned and his attention turned toward different interests, like football and sculpting. Meanwhile, Else blossomed in her newfound obsession. It truly had become an obsession. She spent almost every weekend and holiday jumping from planes. By 1998, her skydiving ambitions and skill level had grown to a point where she was able to compete in formation jumping. This is when skydivers build patterns with their bodies while in free fall. A formation team usually consists of four to eight performers and one videographer. She'd been skydiving for seven years when she joined an all-female skydiving team known as the Divas. They traveled weekend after weekend, entering competitions and shows. With more than a thousand jumps under her belt, Else and her team even ventured into the Skydiving World Championships in 2003. If her plan was to make skydiving into a career, fate had something else in mind. In 2004, a hernia forced her to part ways with the divas. Following a full recovery, she chose to embrace skydiving for the sheer joy of it. She joined the Swart Park Skydiving Club, and by 2006, at age 38, she had completed over 2,300 jumps. Somewhere under the blue sky of Belgium, Else Van Doren met a new friend, one who shared her love of skydiving, and her name. Else Clodemans was a young, aspiring primary school teacher. The two women formed a close friendship. They hung out so much that Else Van Doren began referring to the younger Els as Babs, to avoid confusion, and before long, all the club members called her that as well. Going forward, I will call Else Clodemans Babs as well. The two women and another Dutch skydiver named Marcel Summers were nearly inseparable, and soon they were practicing formations together on a very regular basis. Marcel was the same age as Els and was a skydiving instructor. He and Els took 22-year-old Babs under their wings and helped her learn about formation diving. On November 18, 2006, Els, Marcel, Babs, and another skydiver named Tom were going to jump in a four-person formation. Three of the four jumped at a height of 13,000 feet, which is about two and a half miles up, 
or nearly four kilometers. When the jump signal was given, the inexperienced Babs seemed to have missed her mark and jumped a little bit later than the others. The first three jumpers were in free fall, and Babs couldn't catch up with them. At 9,000 feet, Els, Marcel, and Tom broke their practice formation. They spread apart, preparing to open their parachutes. Marcel and Tom broke away and opened their chutes, but Els continued her downward plunge. She was wearing a camera on her head, which captured her as she fell. She pulls her main parachute cord, but nothing happens at first. When it starts to come out, it's tangled and doesn't open properly. Els knows the emergency procedures. Once in her past, she'd had to pull her reserve parachute when her main chute didn't want to fully open. She pulled the reserve cord, but it didn't open either. And by this point, she was falling at a speed of 200 kilometers per hour or nearly 125 miles an hour. That's a two-mile drop per minute. So she had only seconds to open her parachute completely. In the video footage from Elle's camera, you can see her tangled main chute partially open and a smaller red piece of fabric caught about halfway up the cords leading to the main parachute. She struggles to untangle the lines, but quickly realizes that she's doomed. She screams for help during the last 20 seconds of her fall, followed by the sound of a thump and then silence. A woman in Oplebeek was peacefully hanging her clothes in the backyard when she heard a strange flapping sound and then a loud thud. To her, it sounded far away. She glanced toward the heavens and spotted a parachute in the distance. This was a familiar sight given their proximity to the parachute club. It was something she'd seen many times before. Nonchalantly, she turned to resume hanging her laundry, but when she did, a white cloth on her shrubs, no larger than a pillowcase, caught her eye. She thought maybe a neighbor's laundry had blown into her yard, so she walked over to pick it up. But as she drew closer, she saw a leg and a foot protruding from her shrubbery. In a state of disbelief, she screamed, calling her husband from the garden. He rushed to her side and tried to comfort her and calm her down. They hurried to the phone and called for help. Only a few minutes passed before emergency services arrived, but their efforts were in vain. Else Van Doren could not be saved. Marcel Summers had watched as his friend had struggled to release her parachute. He had watched her crash into the earth before he was able to land safely. Once on the ground, he let loose a guttural scream which echoed through the streets. He began running up and down the street near where he thought Els had landed. He cried for help and called for her. A minute or so later, he saw an ambulance, lights flashing and sirens blaring, which he followed, running behind it. When he arrived at the ambulance location, he ran to the backyard where he saw Els lying dead. He started crying and screaming uncontrollably. He pushed towards her body, but people stopped him, holding him back. He kept screaming, don't touch her parachute. This isn't normal. This shouldn't happen. There has to be something wrong with her parachute. In shock, he kept crying her name over and over. In time, he was allowed to get to her parachute bag. He pulled out her phone and called Elle's husband, Jan, to tell him what had happened. The police then took the phone and told Jan that his wife couldn't be saved and that she had died on the scene. Jan was heartbroken and beside himself. 
He certainly wasn't in a state to drive, but he wanted to get to Else as soon as possible. He called her sister and her husband, who drove him to the parachute club. Meanwhile, Tom and Babs, who had landed safely in the designated parachute landing area, were picked up and transported back to the club in a van used for this purpose. When they arrived back at the club, the owner called everyone together to share the news that Marcel had called him. Elle's main parachute and reserve parachute didn't open. While everyone tried to process the news, Babs fell to the ground and started crying hysterically. The members began working to calm her. A few minutes later, they learned that Els had died. The club members began grieving, but a short time later, they turned their attention to Jan, who had just arrived at the club looking for answers and for any of his wife's belongings. Babs, seemingly recovered from her shock, offered to help Jan gather Els things. Back at the scene of the accident, the police carefully packed away the faulty parachute and they took the film from the helmet camera as the coroner hauled Elle's body away. An autopsy would determine that she had not been under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Her body wasn't punctured in any external way. She died due to multiple bone fractures and internal bleeding. It was discovered that a critical component of Elle's parachute, a pilot chute, was missing. The pilot chute is a small parachute that opens first and pulls out the main parachute. As I understand it, there are two pilot chutes in each bag, one attached to the main parachute and another attached to the reserve parachute. Such a vital piece of equipment could not have simply vanished. It had to have been removed from the larger parachutes somehow. At this point, Elle's death was ruled either a homicide or a suicide. The police decided to keep the missing pilot chute to themselves for the time being. In the days following her death, Elle's family was torn apart by grief, suspicions ballooned, and club members came under scrutiny. Investigators first looked at the people who had been on the plane with Elle's, Tom, Marcel, and Babs. It was less than a day before investigators had their first lead. Marcel had quickly admitted that he and Elle had begun having an affair. It had actually been going on for years. What began as a mutual interest in skydiving had grown into a romance. All the time spent training and traveling to compete and put on shows gave them the opportunity to act on their growing attraction. Quite frankly, the affair wasn't much of a secret at the club. Many of the members either knew about it or didn't know that Else was married at all. They didn't know she had two children at home. She told the club members that she was separated and she told the club manager that she had a nice time with Marcel on the weekends, and during the week she enjoyed her time with her family. She had compartmentalized her two lives. Jan didn't need to know about her life with Marcel, and Marcel didn't need to know about her life with Jan. The missing pilot shoot, the signs of sabotage, and the long-standing extramarital affair between Else and Marcel ignited the flames of a complex case. Allegations swirled, friendships were strained, and everyone wondered who wanted Els dead, or had she done this to herself? Well, there were no signs that Els was suicidal, so police focused on the possibility of murder. Her funeral was held the day before her daughter Carol's 15th birthday. At the funeral, Carol said, How often did we whine that you needed to stop jumping? 
We felt so bad sometimes that you weren't at home like the other moms were on a Sunday, and you're out again jumping from another airplane. But it was actually a good thing. You were unique. I don't know any other mom that would jump out of a plane. Suppose I got you to stop, and then you would have been unhappy. The dimples in your cheeks would have disappeared, and I wouldn't have wanted that. Carol's sister also spoke at the funeral and said, You did everything you could during your fatal jump to save yourself, but someone didn't want you to live. Elle's daughters were at the lowest point in their young lives, but Jan was even lower. He had lost his wife. Then he found out that the woman he loved and that he thought he had a great relationship with was cheating on him. If that wasn't enough to weigh him down, he was also a suspect in her murder. It's always the husband who did it a phrase we hear over and over, and many times it's true. He had access to his wife's parachute and knew quite a bit about skydiving. Maybe he found out about Elle's affair and decided that he'd kill her out of spite and anger. She had been killed. Experts had determined that the pilot chute's activating string had been intentionally cut, and one of the emergency parachute's hanging straps had also been cut. When Elle's head cam recordings were studied, Investigators saw that a piece of something red was captured in the video. It floated in front of Elle's face, but it hadn't been found with her body. It appeared entirely out of place in the context of a parachute. The investigative team asked the residents of Opklabik to scour their gardens for this red object, which resembled a lengthy piece of fabric. They emphasized the importance of handling it with care, as it could contain vital evidence or DNA connected to the person who had sabotaged the parachute. Sadly, residents found nothing. It was discovered, too, that Elle's parachute was scheduled for inspection only two days after her death. This was part of a routine four-month check. A parachute rigger, or a professional trained to inspect, repair, maintain, and pack parachutes, was the only authorized individual allowed to manipulate a jumper's parachute. This meant the timing was critical. The killer must have been aware that the rigger would be inspecting Elle's parachute on the mandatory inspection day, which was November 20th. Skipping this inspection meant the skydiver wasn't allowed to dive anymore. This meant it had to have been someone who was part of the skydiving club, or someone very close to Elle's, Someone who knew her pack wouldn't be inspected until after her next skydive. Remarkably, the black pilot chute that the police had kept quiet about was discovered 48 hours after Elle's tragic demise. It wasn't found by one of the residents living in and around the parachute club. It was Babs who spotted it, high above her head as she drove home from Marcel's house. She said she saw it in a tree and that it was only by chance that she saw it. It was more than 20 meters or 60 feet above everyone's heads. She told police she was stuck behind a tractor, which had slowed down enough that she was able to see the pilot chute. When she saw it, she didn't call police right away. Instead, she called Marcel to tell him that she had found it, and Marcel called the police. When the police arrived, Babs was crying hysterically. She was very emotional as firemen collected the chute from the tree, careful not to destroy any critical evidence that might be needed by the police who were now feeling pretty suspicious about how Babs seemed to have found the pilot chute 
by chance. It was so high up in the tree and so hard to spot that it took them a long time to find it, even when Babs was trying to point it out to them. Babs' story was odd, too. She said she got lost because of a reroute from Marcel's house. It was a different route than she normally took, and she got stuck behind a tractor, so of course she was forced to drive very slowly and just happened to glance up when she saw it, and she was able to identify the black chute. Somehow she saw it hanging there, from the street. The policeman and fireman said to them, it looked like a black paper towel, it was so small. Babs told them it must have been a sign from Els in heaven that she wanted the police to find her killer. The firemen, with great care, retrieved the chute from the tree. They recognized its potential value as it might contain crucial evidence needed for the investigation. The police, however, remained skeptical about circumstances surrounding Babs' discovery. Her explanation wasn't realistic. How could she have seen it from the ground? Especially since it wasn't public knowledge that it was missing. The police believed that maybe Babs knew where the chute was. She had seen Els fall, after all. Maybe she'd seen where that missing piece had landed. But if she had, why hadn't she told police earlier? Either that or she knew to look for it, which meant she knew it was missing. But how could she have known that? Police didn't believe that Els was trying to communicate from the grave, and they also didn't believe Bab's story about finding the pilot chute. The police had identified three potential suspects, Els' husband, Jan, her secret lover, Marcel, and her friend, Babs. Marcel was swiftly ruled out as a suspect. He had no grievous bone to pick with Els. I guess you could say he had a different kind of bone for her. The police shifted their focus onto Jan and Babs. An anonymous letter sent to Els Van Dorn's home the previous year was addressed to her, but it was opened by Jan. He told police it had hinted at some unsettling issues, but had made no mention of an extramarital affair. The letter had been addressed to Els. It was typewritten and unsigned, and it lamented the fact that Els spent so much time away from her family on the weekends. This had been a point of contention in their home for quite some time. Jan assumed the letter was from Els' brother, who felt he had the right to weigh in on the issue in the past. Either that or he thought maybe it was someone from the club who didn't like Els much. Either way, he didn't want to deal with it, and he didn't want Els to worry about it either, so he tore it up and threw it away. Marcel reported receiving anonymous calls when he and Els were together, which further fueled the investigation. The calls involved heavy breathing and then a hang-up. He told police he thought that Babs might have been the one behind the calls, and that maybe she'd been the one to kill Els. When the police asked why he thought that, Marcel began to unload. He opened up about his romantic life, telling them that, in addition to his relationship with Els, he'd also been having sex with Babs. His relationship with her began months earlier, when she had been confiding with a friend about her feelings for Marcel. She said she had found herself developing an emotional attachment to him and was unsure of how to handle the situation. She was torn between her loyalty to her friend Els and her growing affection for Marcel. Her friend suggested she talk to Marcel about it. She took the advice and confided in him about her inner conflict, and seeing an opportunity, 
Marcel proposed a way for them to both maintain their relationships with Els. He had a simple plan to navigate this delicate situation. He suggested that they could both spend time with Els without arousing suspicion. They decided that Babs would spend Friday nights with Marcel, and when Els visited on Saturdays, she could stay with Marcel. They both agreed to keep this arrangement a secret. In the beginning, Babs struggled with feelings of guilt, but the plan seemed to work for everyone involved. She was able to maintain her friendship with Els and her newfound romantic connection by adhering to their plan. Marcel had also made it clear to her that in the event this arrangement was ever revealed, he would choose Els over her. This realization made Babs understand that she would always be his side piece. I guess Marcel learned how to keep two relationships going from Els. He told police about an interaction that he, Els, and Babs had had just a week before Els' murder. It was a typical Friday night. Babs had made her way to see Marcel for their typical Friday night rendezvous. They went out to dinner, but then when they returned home, someone else had arrived at Marcel's apartment. Els had decided to surprise him and came straight from work on a Friday instead of her normal Saturday night routine. When Marcel and Babs returned to his apartment, they saw her standing there, waiting for Marcel to return. It was Babs' night to be with Marcel, but that night it wasn't Babs who shared Marcel's bed. Instead, Els was invited into it, and Babs was left sleeping on a sleeping bag on the living room floor. Why she stayed the night and put herself through the torture of potentially hearing Marcel and Els together is something I can't explain. If we assume she stubbornly didn't go home so that she would make Marcel extremely uncomfortable, well, it might have worked. But Babs may have had to lay there on the floor, listening in on whatever conversations or other more lascivious sounds that Marcel and Els made in that bedroom together. Either way, she would have been fuming with anger. It was supposed to be her night with Marcel. How could he like Els more than her? In a case of misplaced anger, Marcel believed that this was when Babs could have cut the cord on Elle's parachute. It would have taken less than 30 seconds to cut those lines. Her head lay next to Elle's parachute bag, and as she lay restlessly on that hard floor, while the man she loved lay in his cozy bed with his arms around another woman, well, Marcel believed that that was when the plan to kill Elle slithered into Babs' brain feeding on jealousy and rage until it quickly grew into evil action. On the 13th of November, 2006, the police conducted searches at Jan's residence, seizing electronic devices, diaries, and other items. Bab's home wasn't spared either. Police confiscated her laptop, diary, and a book of feelings that her therapist had suggested she keep. Babs was then summoned to the police station for further questioning especially about her relationship with Els and Marcel on the day of Els' death. Babs maintained her innocence concerning the sabotage of Els' parachute. She suggested that it might have been Marcel or Els' husband who could have tampered with it, depending on who she was with throughout the week. Babs was released to go home after questioning, and she was asked to meet with investigators again for a second interview 
but she failed to appear. The situation took a somber turn when it was discovered that Babs had attempted to take her own life just five days before Christmas. On the morning of her scheduled meeting with investigators, she didn't answer her mother's calls. Her mom, feeling uneasy and having a healthy dose of mother's intuition, had rushed home to find Babs unresponsive. She had ingested a dangerous mix of sleeping pills, painkillers, and antidepressants. Her mother, who was a nurse, knew exactly what to do to save her daughter's life. She was rushed to the hospital where her stomach was pumped. It was revealed that Babs had left behind four letters, one to Marcel, one to each her mother, her brother, and a friend. She said she was playing at being an investigator, and she hoped Elle's murderer would be caught. She, too, was having a hard time coping with her best friend's death. In the letters, she admitted her involvement in writing the anonymous letters to Elle's and making the anonymous heavy-breathing phone calls to Marcel when he and Elle's were together. She wrote about her despair regarding her deteriorating life and her sadness that she was a suspect. She knew she had told lies to the police that had made her look bad, but she still proclaimed her innocence. All she had wanted was Marcel, and now that she was a murder suspect, he didn't want anything to do with her. Her suicide attempt took her to a psychiatric hospital, where she was kept under observation for 15 days. She had been previously diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and depression, and this wasn't her first suicide attempt. She turned 23 on January 11th. She'd anxiously awaited a birthday phone call from Marcel, but heard nothing from him. Marcel believed that Babs had not genuinely attempted suicide and was instead seeking attention. He thought she was caught in a web of her own lies and didn't know how to get out. No matter the real reason, her attempted suicide turned the police's attention toward her again. She was now the number one suspect in Elle's death. Her finding the lost shoot, the lies she had told, and then the reluctant truths about her being the one to send the letters to Elle's and make the phone calls to Marcel culminated in her arrest on the 18th of January, while she was still receiving psychiatric care. The next day, Bab made her first appearance in court, where it was decided that there was enough evidence to suspect her involvement in Elle's murder. She was to remain in custody while the investigation continued and further evidence was gathered in the case. Bab's life story began on the 11th of January, 1984. Her mother worked as a nurse and her father was a roofer. Tragically, her father fell from a roof, which resulted in his passing after a five-day coma. At the time, Babs was only two years old and her brother was only three months old. Her mother never remarried, but struggled to raise her children as a single mother, with the support of their grandmother. Babs' teenage years brought about a transformation as she shifted from being calm and timid to experiencing bouts of intense anger. Constant fights with her mother marked her youth. She started self-harming and made attempts to end her own life. It was during this challenging phase that she began receiving psychiatric treatment and was diagnosed with the depression and anxiety. When she turned 18, she gained access to her father's workers' compensation insurance. It was a fund that had been kept in trust for her and her brother until they reached this age. 
Her newfound financial independence let her make some pretty big decisions. She purchased a brand new car and got her driver's license and found freedom. She completed high school and decided to leave Belgium temporarily to work as a volunteer in Guatemala for six months. This experience influenced her decision to pursue a career in working with younger children. She initially enrolled at the University of Ghent to study psychology and education, but faced challenges there and had to retake her first year. Ultimately, she switched to another school in Brussels, where she finished a degree in primary education. In 2003, she found her passion for skydiving and met her new friends. By February of 2007, all suspicions regarding Elle's husband Jan and Marcel were completely eliminated. They had cooperated fully with the investigators, providing all requested information and evidence. There was no motive or evidence linking them to the case. Both Marcel and Jan had undergone polygraph testing. In these tests, Jan was asked about his knowledge of Elsa's affair, any involvement in his death, and any sabotage of her parachute. He answered no to all these questions, and the results indicated that he was telling the truth. Marcel faced similar questions regarding Elle's death and the parachute. His answers also indicated truthfulness. In contrast, Babs refused to take the polygraph test. She gave two reasons for her refusal. First, she was in custody and considered a suspect already, and she was on medication for depression, which could affect the results. Further investigations focused on the parachute. They examined the cuts on the parachute cords and somehow determined that they were made with scissors by a right-handed person. One cord on both the main and reserve parachutes was cut. The automatic opener for the reserve parachute was tested and appeared to be functioning correctly. This device should open the reserve parachute if the jumper is unable to do so manually. But in Elle's case, it didn't work as intended, because the line was cut. The investigation also identified the red piece of fabric seen in the video in front of Elle's face as a piece of ribbon. Although this ribbon was never found, it was believed to have caused a malfunction, preventing the reserve parachute from fully opening. By March 2007, Babs had been in prison for three months. She had to endure intensive interrogations, some lasting more than 16 hours. Psychologists and psychiatrists evaluated her behavior throughout this period, resulting in 85 hours of recorded video. Despite these efforts, Babs did not confess to any wrongdoing. She accused the police of harassment and manipulation, claiming that they were trying to isolate her from everyone. She had originally denied any knowledge of the letter and the phone calls that she made to Else and to Marcel, but after being confronted with the evidence in the suicide note, she admitted that she had made the calls and believed that there might be evidence, video evidence, of her at the payphone she had called him from. The investigation then delved into the timing of Bab's parachute jump, which had happened after the others were in freefall. This would have allowed her to observe events below and track the path of the pilot chute. Police believed that she tried to find the pilot chute the day after Elle's death, believing it could provide crucial information to the police. When she did find it up in the tree, she realized that she could never retrieve it on her own. 
so she came up with the idea that she could be the hero and divert attention away from herself. Despite these findings and beliefs, there was no conclusive evidence pointing to Bab's guilt. She remained in custody for over a year without being convicted. Her lawyer successfully argued for her release on bail in 2008. After her release, Babs pursued her studies further and eventually became a teacher, where she was well-liked by colleagues and students. Her trial would begin in 2010, when she was 26 years old. The prosecution presented a 68-page indictment, arguing that there was enough evidence to charge her with murder. They contended that, as a skydiver, she had the knowledge and opportunity to sabotage the parachute. Her romantic involvement with Marcel, who also had a relationship with Els, provided the motive. Jealousy. She wanted what Els had. Why she didn't place blame on Marcel for using her is a real mystery. In her defense, Bab's lawyer claimed that the prosecution only had circumstantial evidence and no hard physical evidence. He asserted that there was no proof of guilt and that Babs wasn't a psychopath. The trial involved visits to key locations related to the case, including the garden where Else died and where the pilot chute was found. Videos of Babs during the interrogations were shown in court. In these videos, she displayed little emotion or empathy and often responded aggressively to interrogators. She was seen as self-centered and uncooperative, repeatedly making false statements and attacking her interrogators. In one video, she points the finger at one of Jan and Elle's daughters, saying that they should investigate her because she had been upset that her mother was gone every weekend and that she likely knew how a parachute worked. In court, Elle's husband Jan expressed the devastating impact of the events on his life. He described how his world had come crashing down when the police informed him of his wife's death. He talked about how then he found out that his wife had an affair, and then that he was a suspect in her murder. He tried to explain how challenging it was to explain these events to his children, particularly the accusation of murder. He didn't know how to explain that his wife was gone, let alone that she was murdered. Then he told the jury about his interaction with Babs when he went to collect Elle's belongings from the parachute club. He had noticed that Babs didn't seem as sad as the others and had a weird smile on her face. She proceeded to the women's locker room to get Elle's things with Jan in tow. She walked into the locker room and closed the door behind her, blocking Jan from entering. It was an awkward moment. Then she took an abnormally long time to return to Jan. The next day, she visited his house and gave him a prayer card. By this time, He'd been told that Els had been having an affair, but hadn't been told who it was with, so he confronted Babs about it, asking him who the affair partner was. Babs told him that it was Marcel Somers. She then went on saying that Els was very jealous about anyone who associated with Marcel, and mentioned that Els told Babs that she wasn't allowed to bring her female friends to Marcel's apartment. Just to be clear, she was saying that Els was jealous of other women who were involved in Marcel's life. And Babs was saying this to Els' husband. This insensitive response angered Jan. Of course it did. 
He asked her to leave and stated that he never wanted to see her again because she was speaking ill of the mother of his children. He also said that he asked no one from the parachute club to come to the funeral, but Babs had ignored this request. She went to the funeral, and she had the audacity to ask for some time alone with Els. He then went on to say that Els was the love of his life, and that his sunshine and joy was taken away on the day of her death. He said there was no way his wife would have committed suicide, and he believed that there was enough evidence to convict Babs of murder. The third side of the love triangle, Marcel, also testified in court. He emphasized that Els was also the love of his life, and yet he defended his relationship with Babs, describing it as a natural development. He emphasized that Els knew nothing about Babs, and that Babs had the opportunity to tell her about the affair, but chose not to do so. He stated multiple times that Els was his number one, and Babs came second. He said that the Friday that all three people slept at his place, Els stayed there the whole weekend, leaving on Sunday. That same evening, Babs unexpectedly returned to his apartment, and after a fight about the night before, he and Babs hooked up. It was ultimately found that Els Klotzmans was guilty of the murder of Els Van Dorn. They sentenced her to 30 years in prison with the possibility of applying for early release after serving a third of her sentence. Her conviction was based on circumstantial evidence and the belief that jealousy had driven her to commit the crime. After 10 years in jail, Babs applied for early release. It was 2020. It was determined that it was too early for her, as one of the conditions for release is that there's some type or some sense of guilt for the crime that she committed. But Babs has always expressed her innocence. She once said, Elsa's dead and will remain dead. She will not return. I'm still alive, however, and meanwhile I'm alone, broken, and locked in a cell. I really don't know how long I will persevere. You've spoken constantly of Els Van Dorn, but who's worse off? The children of Els who still have a father, and Jan who still has his children? Clearly, she was trying to say that she's the one we should pity. But she can stop playing victim. We know who the real victim was. And the jury found Babs guilty. So we don't need to hear any more about her. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends. If you loved it, please consider becoming a Patreon. You'll find pictures to go with this episode on Patreon as well as on Facebook and Instagram. There are links to all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much to everyone who supports the podcast on social media. And I'd like to end with reading just a couple of wonderful reviews written by you precious listeners. The first is from Sydney Sidewinder from Australia, who says, Nearly perfect. Five stars. Love the storytelling style. Delivery. Everything. Great range of stories. Many are unheard of. Thank you, Sydney Sidewinder. I think that's a snake, right? (laughs) The second one is... From Facebook, from Valerie C., who says, Stumbled upon this international podcast quite recently, but I have listened to almost all of them. Sandy's voice is very relaxing, and it's interesting to have some less well-known crimes from around the world. 
The podcasts are well-researched and brilliantly delivered. Thank you so much. I've got one more review for you from the Off Watch podcast. They are sailors who love true crime. And they say Twisted Travel and True Crime podcast is brilliant. Just finished listening to the harrowing episode Bones in the Trenches. 100% recommend. And I recommend you sailors check out their podcast. I bet you'd love it. Thank you all for listening. And to all of you, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.